0: Hi, and welcome to Data Futurology, the podcast for data enthusiasts, data scientists, and data science leaders to learn the skills required to take your career to the next level. We do this by learning directly from the mistakes, the lessons learned, and the journeys of top industry leaders. My name is Felipe Flores, and I am your host. Thank you so much for tuning in. Today, we speak with Pavel Pleskov. Pavel is a Russian data scientist who is currently number three on the Kaggle leaderboard. So obviously a Kaggle grandmaster of which there is about 140, 150 in the world at the moment, the top level, the highest level that can be achieved in Kaggle and out of those Pavel is number three, so obviously a wealth of knowledge. Besides that, he's started companies in the past and has worked in many many different industries before being a data scientist and tells us about that journey and how he became a data scientist and how he became a grandmaster in Kaggle and also um, tells us a bit about his what makes him obviously a lot of people ask him how they can be successful at Kaggle and he definitely has some insights into how he works and what you should seek what you should seek to replicate it's a really interesting discussion I really enjoyed it I hope you do too. Hi, this is Felipe, and today I'm speaking with Pavel. How are you doing, mate? I'm doing really great. How are you? Great. I am so excited to have you on the show. Thank you so much for making the time. And at the beginning of the interviews, I always like to ask guests, how did you get started in the data space? What was it that drew you into the area?
1: So... That's a complicated one. I think uh, I started my journey long ago when I was uh, at the university. I had a major in mathematics and then in economics. It's not uh, like data science or machine learning or computer science. At some point, I realized that I really like automation. I really like uh, software engineering. And I started to move uh, towards those things so throughout my career i started to work uh, with data from uh, the very first job so after graduating uh, i worked as a financial consultant uh, at oliver wyman i've been there for nine months I was building a lot of financial models there, like the Excel spreadsheets, like 250 pages spreadsheets, which our clients uh, would open for half an hour while uh, having their lunch. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) that was incredible. We actually built a financial model, quarterly based financial model for five years for a major financial corporation in Russia. It was really huge. It was also the last project I did for Oliver Wyman because uh, my entire work of uh, six months was thrown uh, into garbage. That is kind of disappointing. So it really disappoints when you do some useless job. Nobody uses it afterwards. I think uh, it's quite often uh, when it's happening in consultancy, even more in investment banking. So for me, those were two primary choices when I graduated from New Economic School, mostly because uh, they paid well and uh, actually choose the consultancy over investment banking because at that point, I thought that uh, in consulting, you Work only during one weekend, and uh, in investment banking you work seven days per week, every weekend. Mm. So that was something I would enjoy. So like working on Saturdays uh, was okay with me. So um, I quit uh, consulting after like this. Tough nine months and this incredible project of building uh, giant financial models. And then I started to pursue my dream, which is uh, algorithmic trading. Mm. So as I already mentioned, I really like the notion of automation and building some uh, autonomous algorithms. And uh, what is the better way to apply those skills rather than uh, going and make some money with algorithms? So uh, at some point in life, I discovered that there are trading firms and then people can make a lot of money there. And I thought that my skills were perfectly suited for this industry. So I dived straight into it. I went to one internship, uh, summer internship uh, in Moscow and uh, with a well-known Russian trading firm. But I don't think it's really famous outside of Russia. At that time, I had a choice between going to a very famous government investment bank in Russia and then become a financial analyst and uh, continue building some financial models or try to go to a really little paid uh, summer internship in trading, high-frequency trading. And um, I chose chose the second option because uh, I was trying to pursue my dream. And uh, it went really well. I got the job. After the summer, and uh, I've been a quantitative researcher there for two years. I've been developing some trading strategies, options and futures and uh, and other strategies. I've learned a lot, and uh, I've been working with uh, data a lot. It was the first moment uh, in my career when I really started to do some software engineering. So I started with uh, C-Sharp, uh, I think. uh uh-huh. It was really easy to learn this language. I had some experience back at the university, but um, I think um, some of um, this knowledge was forgotten at that point. So I almost started from scratch. Like The biggest uh, motivation for me was um, to do some math problems at a project earlier. There's a a web page with 600 math and uh, computer science problems. It's like small brain teasers. It all started with some very basic, very simple problems. The level of complexity increases as you go through. So I tried to crack all those problems with this new language, C-sharp, I discovered. I think it went pretty well. And then after two years at this high-frequency training firm, My girlfriend at that moment, she was trying to enter a master's degree in London. It was her lifetime dream, and I started to look for quantitative researcher positions in London as well. It didn't uh, went well, but I found a position, uh, I think it was uh, Malta Island. It wasn't uh, something which were like in line with the plans of my girlfriend. It still sounded very exciting, like uh, an island and uh, doing quantitative research there. So I was really excited. I passed a couple of stages, interview stages, and then uh, I talked to my boss. And uh, it turned out that the company I was applying for, it was a long-term rival of the company I was working for. The next day, I actually got fired. oh what yeah yeah i mean it was like not the next day it was over the new year i came from the holidays and uh, i quickly discovered that i have no no access to my computer and so on and the company was okay when i was looking for a job in in london because uh, they weren't uh, at this market at that time but uh, they were totally not okay when i applied for the competitor like former competitor but i didn't know that. <laughs> So I I was a bit disappointed because I couldn't find a job as a quantitative researcher in London, but Mm. like within two weeks, Two software engineers from um, the company, like the former company I worked for, they contacted me. They quit, I think, maybe a month or two ago before me. And they asked if I want to join their new trading firm and uh, be a head of uh, research team. And I quickly agreed because uh, I think after doing this job for two years, I was capable of doing it on my own. And uh, I was thinking about it a lot. Because uh, there is always like, some quantitative researchers and uh, there are partners who owns the business. It's completely different in terms of compensation and uh, in terms of responsibility, mostly in terms of big picture you see while doing this business. When you're a quantitative researcher, you work on several strategies like a couple of them, but uh, when you own the business, you see the entire picture, what's going on, what's going on with the competitors, with infrastructure, with all the strategies. So um, it was really uh, exciting. I joined this company. I became a third partner. Interesting thing was that we've been working remotely. It was six years ago, five or six years ago, when I started to work remotely, and I still do. I still enjoy it. And uh, when you start to work remotely in Russia, uh, which everybody knows is famous for like cold winters, the Mm. first thing that comes to your mind is get the hell out (laughs) of there. That was uh, exactly uh, what I've done. So uh, I started to Google some countries where I can spend uh, like half a year. Without like uh, having troubles with uh, issuing visas and it uh, should be a relatively cheap country and safe with good uh, internet connection. So a lot of criteria. Also, uh, I was interested in, uh, to finding a job uh, for my girlfriend and she was a teacher of English. So we've been doing research for a while and the ideal country turned out to be Vietnam. It's really popular among Russians because uh, there was a huge uh, history of cooperation between Vietnam and USSR during the Vietnamese war. So uh, right now, uh, this relationship continues with Russia. And um, I think uh, now it's really popular tourist destination. So yeah, we went there, my girlfriend uh, found a job. Uh, The funny thing that there is a huge demand from uh, like uh, local Vietnamese students for learning English. And there are a lot of schools there. Of course, they all uh, want uh, native speakers to be teachers. But it's not that easy to get all these native speakers, like get them to come to Vietnam. Like There are many occasions when they just hire everybody. And the finest thing I knew that they wouldn't hire an Asian person, even if he'd been living in New York through his entire... Because they wow. just can't believe that the Asian person can be an Asian speaker. So it was a, a case when. I think it was a Chinese guy. He was born in New York been living there for his entire life. He's definitely a native speaker, but uh, he wasn't hired because uh, of, uh, like, of his nationality. And he just doesn't look like a an native speaker. My girlfriend, uh, she was hired, even though she had uh, a totally Russian last name. But uh, oh. I think her accent uh, was really great. She got a British accent. She went uh, to United Kingdom for several years to learn English. So, yeah, she got the job. I've been working remotely, and uh, it was uh, the first time I spent half a year outside of Russia. It was also the time I felt in love with uh, kite surfing. So uh, wow. well, well, one of the motivations, I went to Asia because uh, I wanted to explore some uh, water sports. The first thing that came to my mind was uh, surfing. When I went to the city of Vung Thau, so it's a small uh, Vietnamese city not far from Ho Chi Minh, we were actually uh, like uh, looking through some uh, surfing spots, and Wung uh, Tao was one of those spots. I went there, and I quickly discovered that the proper waves come at 5 a.m. That wasn't uh, something that I would enjoy getting up so early. Uh-huh. I also had to work, uh, according to Moscow time zone, so it's a 4 hours mm-hmm. difference. So 5 a.m. in Vietnam means 1 a.m. in Moscow, so in the middle of the night. It just doesn't work for me. And then uh, I saw this guy on a kitesurf surf. He was riding uh, like uh, through the the shore in the middle of the day. And then I, I thought, yeah, that's something I, I could I could do because it was. And I, yeah. I, I started to learn kitesurfing surfing there. I cannot say that Vietnam is the best place because um, they have some waves there and uh, a lot of local people swimming. So. Uh, it wasn't a perfect place, but uh, as I was told uh, by my coach, if you get to know how to ride in Vietnam, you can ride anywhere. And uh, it was actually mm-hmm. the case. I struggled a lot. I knew I can overcome this. I learned how to ride and uh, I bought my own equipment at the end of the season. And then, uh, then. Uh, I went to ride uh, in several other places. So yeah, getting back to the data science, I've been working uh, for two years remotely in my own uh, high-frequency trading firm. It was a team of ten people, uh, fully remote in several countries. I've been heading uh, the research department there, so we've been uh, discovering and building trading strategies. And uh, at some point, I think like the spark just gone. I just stopped enjoying it. I mean, when when you first try to build your like the f- very first uh, trading strategy, you are all excited. You want to try a lot of different things to test some hypotheses, to like try and implement some trading signals. But uh, like after four years, I think I, I've tried a lot of things and um, I taught a lot of people how to do the same. It wasn't exciting anymore for me in trading especially in high frequency trading uh, you care a lot about infrastructure and in terms of in terms of uh, trading strategies i think they were pretty simple i forgot to mention that uh, at that point uh, i already switched to c++ from c sharp mm-hmm. so i was implementing my mm-hmm. strategies in this language because yeah it's low latency and so on it's a golden standard for high frequency trading most of the programs were a bunch of if statements so it wasn't uh like very smart because i mean it should be fast and uh, you can't implement like xgboost there because it takes too much time and i'm not talking about neural nets and so on it was more like decision trees based on some heuristics which you come up with uh like using a backtesting environment so uh, At this point, I I was really thinking about what am I going to tell to my grandchildren? So how do I spend uh, my time and uh, how do I invest my time and skills and so on? And uh, what impact do I do? Like just making some money out of thin air? I think at that point, there were a couple of dozens of teams of our size on the Russian market, and they were doing pretty much the same. There were a couple of giant uh, firms, much more experienced. They got all the money from the market, and uh, we got the rest. It was okay for living, but we were not the best. There was no understanding, at least for me, how to become the best, how to become number one in this industry. So it, it was also a bit disappointing. Yeah, those who think you don't not know how to become the very best, You do it doesn't make a lot of sense uh, what you are doing. I quickly discovered that there is a such thing as data science, and there are so many fancy algorithms and methods there. There were some articles about uh, applying data science techniques to medicine, for example, like detecting cancer by using images. I just uh, like felt in love with this idea that you can use almost the same uh, methods you use uh, when you predict uh, like future time series, maybe slightly different, but apply them to a variety of industries and uh, they actually can be useful. So I decided to quit my job as a partner of this trading firm and started to learn uh, through Coursera courses, all the machine learning courses I could found. Of course, wow. uh, on this list was the famous Andrew NG course on machine learning. Yeah. Then I switched to fast AI by Jeremy Howard. I know that uh, a lot of people find it hard to go through his two hours videos. They're not that exciting, but uh-huh. um, it was, uh, Summer when I broke my leg and I was uh, spending a lot of time at home. So for 10 years, I've been uh, doing uh, some mountain biking. In particular, it was dirt jumping. Uh, It's doing tricks on some trampolines. I really enjoyed that during my years at university. I think uh, I've been doing it actively for five years. I broke a lot of bicycles, spent uh, tons of my parents' money on the bicycle parts. (laughs) It was actually the start of the sport in Russia. There were no skate parks, no foam pits to like uh, train your tricks and uh, there were like a handful of people uh, who was good at this sport i really enjoyed that at that moment i saw that uh, there is nothing more enjoyable uh, that i can do in, in life as it turned out, uh, there is no way you can make money of it, like as it was uh, 10 years ago. Right now, of course, there are some uh, famous action sports athletes in Russia in uh, both mountain bike and BMX, like uh, Pavel Alekhin, uh, Aka Vishnevi, also like Pyotr Andreev, and so on. At that time, I think everybody was uh, just. Like going to universities, living with their parents, maybe doing some work. And in your free time, they've been enjoying the mountain biking. So uh, when two years ago, I was still riding a bicycle, not that actively, like it was 10 years ago, I discovered this uh, dirt jumping spot not far from my house. It was actually quite a famous one in Krylatko district. I think I've been dreaming about riding it for my entire life because uh, almost state of the art spot and uh, one summer day I went there I wasn't uh, doing a lot of warm up I just started to ride doing some bar spins and then I started to do 360 I felt and uh, my leg uh, just uh, broke <laughs> I somehow get home uh, then I went to my car it has uh, automatic transmission, oh. so uh, I only <laughs> I only needed one leg to drive it. So I oh. drove to the hospital, called my girlfriend. We met there. It was really painful, and at some point, I, I thought that I, I can just faint and lose my conscience. But I think it went well. We went to the hospital. Uh, they've done some procedures. Uh, made an x-ray, said to me that uh, it was quite serious because I broke three bones. They said the next day I need to perform an operation on the leg. That wasn't my plan at all. So um, I refused to make it. And uh, there is a very famous specialist in Russia who works with uh, such kind of traumas and broken bones for athletes. Actually, my mother went to her 10 years ago. The methods she uses, she doesn't perform an operation. She fixes uh, the bones, like uh, uh-huh. put them in place. And then uh, uh-huh. you need to do a lot of exercises. Uh, the most ironic part was the major exercise you do is you ride a bicycle. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, you need to make your blood flow. That's uh, uh-huh. the most crucial part of healing process. So you fix your bones, uh, then you exercise a lot because when you do an operation, uh, you lose uh, a lot of muscles because uh, you do not exercise your leg at all. That's the problems with operations. Yeah, that's what I've been doing uh, for two months during uh, that summer after I quit my job. I've been uh, doing some uh, cycling at home and watching uh, Jeremy Howard's videos. That's how I got through Fast AI course. How long
0: did it take you to get through Fast AI courses?
1: Yeah, there are 14, 14 oh. or 15 lectures there, all of them two hours, and I think it took me a month or so, maybe three weeks. Yeah, I mean uh, there is nothing better to do when you're cycling at home uh, except for watching some videos and uh, Fast AI was enjoyable for me at, the, at that moment because I was all yeah. into data science and consuming this tons of information about deep learning and machine learning algorithms. I've been through a lot of courses. The one disappointing thing about all these online courses is uh, the lack of practice. All the homeworks, they take a uh, little time. Sometimes it's about uh, fixing one line of code and uh, it's far, far from the real practice. This was the moment when I discovered Kaggle. I knew there is a, a platform where people can compete. And uh, the most important part about Kaggle is uh, about uh, Kaggle kernels, where people actually uh, share their solutions. And uh, they are incentivized to do so by uh, giving some rewards and uh, getting up in the ranking. So people share solutions. And uh, that's where you can get some state-of-the-art uh, algorithms and methods for a particular task. And uh, this is exactly what I started to do. I started to look through those kernels, try to run them uh, them on my local computer, try to improve them, and uh, started to learn about like, all the algorithms and tricks and methods. And uh, from the practical point of view, it was much more helpful than any homework at any online course. And uh, yeah, two years after that, I became uh, number three in the world at Kaggle. I became a grandmaster within six months. It sometimes uh, happens the competition uh, has ended, and you still have to wait for some time when uh, the submissions all and solutions are validated. And uh, you receive like your medals and your points maybe a week or two after the end of the competition. It was uh, the 8th of May, one day before my birthday. We went uh, to Cuba with uh, my wife. I discovered the news yeah that I was granted the title of Grandmaster. So it was incredible. That was uh, the best present I, I could uh, ever imagine uh, to receive. <laughs> I think uh, the biggest part of success was that I didn't have a job at that time. So I was spending full time on Kaggle for one and a half years. In the other was definitely my passion towards competing and towards acquiring new knowledge and new skills. So those were two major parts of success. And uh, I was really glad that I found uh, my passion, that I, I found something that I could do. Every evening, I could oh. wake up 5 a.m. on Saturday and uh, start doing some Kaggle competitions. I couldn't believe that uh, this is possible to find, uh, find such a passion in something in life. That's, I think, how I got uh, into data science. <laughs> a well, that's long, that's but... amazing.
0: It's what? It's great. <laughs> it's great. And I obviously, I definitely want to go back and ask you uh, so many more questions. And then you've been working as a data scientist recently as well. Is that right?
1: Yeah yeah there's a uh, quite a story behind that as well I, yeah. I have a lot of stories <laughs> It's great it's great So um one year after I started Kaggle I became a grandmaster I was uh, I think man already a one top 100 I came back to Russia after spending uh, some more time outside during the winter So l- last year my wife and I we went to United States we went to Burning Man uh, it was the place where I actually proposed to my wife. So I proposed to my wife, and then we went to Mexico to do some kitesurfing and uh, Kaggle. We've been living on Cozumel Island for four months. It was really incredible. Wow. It's a Caribbean island. Like all major breakthroughs uh, were done there, in Kaggle were done there. So I came back to Russia, and uh, at this point, uh, I was uh, like, Quite famous in uh, local data science community, ODS.ai community, very famous, I think. Yeah, of course, uh, people started to offer me some job opportunities. I was uh, like a bit picky about that. Then uh, I got contacted uh, by some guys which graduated uh, from uh, New Economic School, which I finished as well, and they started machine like a data science consultancy firm and uh, wanted me to join their team. So I joined them uh, as a chief data scientist. This was really funny because I had like no experience in working in data science, only one year of Kaggle, and then I became a chief data scientist from the beginning. We've been working in a small team of uh, some software engineers and uh, mathematicians, tried to do some projects. It was summertime. I've been uh, commuting to work by motorcycle every day. The office was in very fancy district, which is called Moscow City. It's a business district with a lot of skyscrapers, a lot of investment banks there, consultants and so on. I have no idea how we could uh, get this office there, but still we got it. Uh, It was a small room divided into two parts. There were more than 10 people there. Not the ideal place to work, especially (laughs) especially when uh, after working uh, remotely for four years. So we did a couple of projects. It was getting colder. I stopped uh, using motorcycle as a commute source. Then I decided that I I want to go back to remote work. That was the end of my career as a chief data scientist in consulting. (laughs) I started to look for remote positions and uh, quickly discovered that uh, that's not an easy task actually, because um, you have a lot of remote software engineer positions. The problem with the data science right now is uh, that the job itself is not structured well. In software engineering, you have uh, like backend front end, you have PHP software engineers. You have a software engineer for like almost every task. It is well specified. It is well known how much specialist of this kind uh, could be paid. And so on. But in data science, especially uh, when a small firm hires a data scientist, they usually don't know what to expect. They cannot distinguish between like machine learning engineer or research data scientists. I think uh, there is a distinguish like a giant uh, IT companies like Facebook and Google, they have uh, well-defined roles right now for data scientists. They stopped using this term. They now have researchers and uh, machine learning engineers.
0: What do you see as the, the difference between the those roles?
1: So uh, machine learning engineer, for me, is really close to software engineer. It's a person uh, who can uh, program well and uh, knows uh, like uh, some machine learning algorithms and can implement them. And uh, researcher data scientist, it's more about academia, about going through recent papers, building prototypes quickly and maybe discovering new algorithms. There might be something uh, in between, which is called uh, applied uh, data scientist, someone Mm -hmm. uh, who maybe will not be able to invent a new convolutional neural network architecture or invent a new loss. But he can um, easily understand uh, what is uh, the state of the art algorithms right now and uh, can easily implement them. So it's somewhere in between. I regard myself as uh, an applied uh, data scientist. And uh, of mm-hmm. course, there are also some data analysts, which like not exactly data scientists. And uh, there are some roles in uh, big IT companies for this position as well. So I started to look through job opportunities, remote job opportunities. One thing I already mentioned that the job is not structured well. And the other thing is uh, data security because uh, obviously data scientists uh, work uh, with uh, tons of data and uh, sometimes it's proprietary and uh, sometimes you cannot share to the third parties. It's a bit tricky to work remotely as a data scientist. So uh, I went to angel.co webpage where people uh-huh. like from startups hire talents. I think uh, I applied for maybe 200 positions. I like this webpage because uh, it's an easy process to apply for a position. You just click a button and okay. that's it. No resumes, no covering letters. It's really like automatic process when you apply for a position. I think uh, the conversion was uh, quite low. I think I had uh, from three to five calls with the actual people from those 200 applications. I ended up working uh, for an NLP startup uh, called Point API. They do auto-completion and the the product is called uh, Scribe. They gave me a, a test task, uh, actually a research task, which I really enjoyed. Uh, I, I spent, uh, I think, half a Saturday doing this. And uh, it was uh, a, like open-ended question, no definitive answer. So I could apply any research skills I, I want. I think uh, guys were really impressed with my skills and they hired me. It's a United States. Based startup they have some people working remotely from Poland as well some software engineers so yeah I've been working there for half a year I'm uh, the only data scientist there so uh, a lot of freedom I would say a lot of opportunities I think uh, every week I do some like completely different tasks. They are all in the realm of NLP, of course, but uh, I'm working with some tabular data, building some NLP models, and uh, there's a lot of opportunities for doing some research. But yeah, it was really tough finding this job. I'm really glad I did it. I think it took me maybe two months.
0: Yeah, and you can do it remotely, right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I'm still doing it remotely, and uh, this winter, I again went to Vietnam to a small village which is called Muine. It's a popular kitesurfing village, bunch of Russians there. So a perfect place for work.
0: Amazing. Well done. And um actually first I'll ask you about something that you said during your time in the fund. You mentioned that you couldn't see a path to being the very best. Why is it important to be the very best?
1: Yeah, that's actually a good question and uh, I've been thinking A lot recently when uh, like working with my coach about these issues, why I try to like compete and to become the very best. I think uh, the key ingredient of success is to find uh, something you like to become the very best in what you're doing. And uh, there is no workaround. So uh, if you're doing something that you do not enjoy, then there is no way you can uh, become uh, the very best because um, there will be uh, some obstacles on your way. There will be some disappointment. The only way to overcome them is to actually enjoy what you're doing. The other way around, if you found something you enjoy, The understanding of how to say it. So the the sign of you enjoying this thing would be that you do it all the time. If you found something really enjoyable, you would spend as much time as you can. If you spend a lot of time on something, you are getting better. And uh, then it's a self-fulfilling process. You are getting better. You enjoy it more as you enjoy it more, you do it more and you are getting even more, even more better understand what i am talking so for me it's that's a natural way when you found your destination found a thing in your life i know that it really takes a lot of time to find find your passion in life sometimes people spend uh, too much time on things they do not enjoy but uh, things that can bring some money maybe bring some status they experience this social pressure they don't want to become what they want, what they enjoy. They want uh, to become like somebody who are accepted uh, in in the society, pursue some careers which are prestigious, maybe uh, becoming a director or a lawyer or a doctor, maybe some well-paid jobs, but uh, they actually do not enjoy them. And uh, getting back to the original question, for me, there is no choice of not uh, getting the, the very best if I understand that I cannot be the very best, then uh, it means that this is something is going wrong. I do not do what I enjoy.
0: <laughs> that is amazing. Yeah, that's great. And in your studies, when you were doing mathematics and economics, did you come across machine learning back then
1: at all? Actually, I did not. So in mathematics, we did some computer science, we did some optimization and automation. I really enjoyed that, but I had so limited understanding of what the software engineering is and uh, i had that feeling that if you get this job like for example in in russia then uh, you're going to be a tool in somebody's business and you could easily be replaced with uh, somebody else and uh, there is no room for growth at that point i really didn't think uh, about pursuing this career path even though in my heart, I understood that uh, this is something I really enjoy because of creativity, because you're building something and uh, there is uh, no limitations, almost no limitations for what you can build. And it's done by your hands. In uh, new economic school, while doing uh, master's in economics, we've been working uh, with data analysis a lot with econometrics. It's a bit different from machine learning. It was actually quite complicated. So I, I couldn't say that I enjoyed it very much. Econometrics is uh, all about, like, especially in economics, is all about making sense of some regression coefficients. So in machine learning, the only thing you care about is, uh, like, the quality of your prediction. And uh, in econometrics, uh, you care a lot about uh, the model itself, how it explains the world. That wasn't something that I enjoyed very much. I knew that uh, data is everything. Like Andrew Ng now says, uh, AI is new electricity. And uh, I think uh, five years ago, it it was quite obvious. So uh, I knew that I enjoyed working with data, getting some insights from it, because it is also a creative process when you can come up with something nobody saw in the data. It is very... Satisfactory, and uh, I knew I like to automate things and to do some software engineering. So I think uh, data science was a perfect fit, blending those two things I enjoyed.
0: That's incredible. And tell me, how was it when you first started getting into Kaggle? How was the initial part of it? How did you find it? How did you get started? What was the early days of your Kaggle journey like?
1: Right now sometimes maybe even a lot of people uh, write to me and they say I have maybe 2 or 3 hours after work and I want to become successful at Kaggle how do I start actually I have no advice to them because uh, uh-huh. when I started I didn't ask any questions. I just uh, started to look at the kernels. At Kaggle, started to try to enter any competition and try to improve my score on the leaderboard. It was uh, an advice I've heard from Jeremy Howard: like every day, try to improve your result. Even by a tiny bit, but try to improve. Even by maybe tweaking some parameters, whatever. You need to improve every day. And that's what I've been doing. And that's what's been driving me. Every morning I woke up, I thought about all the competitions. I could I could uh, make a progress today. But uh, I didn't ask anybody how should I spend my time. I just did it. I enjoyed the process. I think this is an advice I got from the Mark Manson uh, self-help book, which is called uh, "The Subtle Art of Not Giving a Fuck." It's quite famous. I think Uh, you had a question on your list about uh, like the habits which helped you uh, in the recent five years, and for me, it was uh, reading a lot of books. I had a goal of reading uh, fifty books per year, a book uh, in a week. I never achieved this goal, but was quite close. I think I I read a lot. How close? at one year, I think it was around uh, 45. The next year, it was about 40. I mean, I mean it's quite a number of books i read. It, uh, a lot of them were about some business, some management, and a lot about some self-help books, maybe about happiness and uh, life satisfaction and work. The great, great advice from this book by Mark Manson was um, do not try to find something you enjoy. You're probably already doing it. So if you're thinking, what should I do with my free time? Just uh, try to observe what you're already doing. If somebody asks me, I have two, three three hours after work, and uh, how should I start uh, doing Kaggle? So if you don't do Kaggle, that's probably that's not the way you should pursue. That's really important uh, piece of advice. If you're really enjoying something, you're probably already spending some time on that. It doesn't matter what you spend time on. People just tend to spend time on what they enjoy. And uh, for me, it was Kaggle. Every time I wake up in the morning, since I I had no job, every morning I was making a choice. What do I want to do today? Every day, the answer was Kaggle. I enjoyed it, and uh, there is so many information out there on forum discussions, in kernels, and uh, outside of Kaggle. So... There is no way you would struggle to find uh, how to fill up your time. There is always uh, a competition, even several competitions uh, going on. So that's, I think, how I started. I just I mean, did it <laughs> and yeah. enjoyed it.
0: It's really great. What did you enjoy about the process?
1: First of all, the competitive part is uh, it's crucial. It's like a drug. Every time you see uh, your score going up on the leaderboard, uh, you experience, you experience uh, this excitement. If you're doing nothing, uh, you will go down on the leaderboard and uh, you will experience disappointment. And uh, it's a classical scheme uh, of like reward and punishment. In order to <laughs> see the, you, you should work, if you don't work, uh, you get punished. As simple as it is, this is uh, a part of the story. I really enjoyed competitions from like the very early ages uh, when I took part in some math olympiads, like maybe starting from the fifth grade. I always enjoyed uh, becoming the first, getting some medals and prizes, and so on. I found it like this feeling once again on Kaggle, and uh, on Kaggle I also understood that I I could uh, become the first, I could become the top. It's not easy in life to find something in life where you can become the very first. The other part is, uh, I think, curiosity. So uh, I really enjoy getting new knowledge, discovering new ideas, maybe new people. It actually reflects in one of my hobbies, which is traveling. I've been to 55 countries already next week, even two more countries uh, to this list which one is Dubai and the other is India. So uh, I think uh, this enjoyment of getting new knowledge and ideas uh, also comes uh, from the very young age and be easily satisfied with Kaggle as well. So I think those two parts, competition and uh, new knowledge, it was crucial.
0: So interesting. And tell me a bit more about how you learn. How do you get new knowledge? For example, if you're trying to learn something new to improve your score on a Kaggle competition and you find an online course about it, would you do the entire course or would you just do the relevant parts?
1: Yeah, that's actually a very nice question. So when I started, I made the mistake that a lot of newcomers to Kaggle make. I tried to get as much theory as i could i thought that uh, i need to listen to all the courses and then once i get all this knowledge i could start practicing but it actually works the other way around you start practicing and if you discover something uh, you don't know you go and google it you don't need the entire course to listen to you can read a blog post i think there are so many materials on twitter on medium where people can distill some knowledge where they can uh, write some essential information in uh, 10 minutes uh, reading post. This is just incredible how much guidance you can find, uh, knowledge you can find on the internet right now on like any specific topic that's exactly how i'm doing today but i mean of course it's a bit different now i know a lot of things i know a lot lot of algorithms right now for me when i cover a lot of gray areas i'm trying to go deeper maybe uh, to discover some uh, rarely used algorithms or maybe uh, some Fancy implementations, maybe faster implementations, trying to work with uh, different parameters. I mean, for example, you, you have LightGBM, and uh, there are maybe 20 parameters out there. I know people who run a LightGBM with default parameters, and uh, they think it's okay. But it's definitely not okay. Of course, if you want to get a great results, you have to fine-tune your parameters. And then people uh, look at maybe three major parameters, but that's not enough either. You have to go deeper. If you want to really succeed, you have a deeper understanding how the algorithm works, the runtime, and uh, for each parameter, you should understand what it's doing, how it affects accuracy, how it affects speed, and then decide uh, to resolve uh, those trade-offs. That's uh, what I'm doing currently. Once again, uh, you don't need the entire online courses or the entire books to get this knowledge. Sometimes it could be just a piece of advice from your peer, from some more experienced guy on this topic, that could be enough.
0: And do you feel that you needed to do a lot of courses completely end-to-end first before being able to look for and use the bite-size bit of knowledge that you needed at the right time? So did you have to go through entire courses in order to then be able to use specific blog posts later down your career? help you improve your score
1: that's a good one as well so it's a bit hard to understand uh, because uh, i had a really strong uh, background in math for example because a lot of people ask me do you need uh, like linear algebra do you need uh, probability and statistics do you need calculus i cannot answer those questions because uh, it's almost in my blood in my dna this knowledge Mm. i cannot help people uh, who doesn't know this because uh, when Mm. i make a decision on which algorithm to use, uh, maybe which data to look and uh, how to interpret results. I don't quite understand uh, which part of my knowledge experience I use. So I think it was still helpful to go through some courses especially uh, some well-taught, maybe some high-level courses where the knowledge is well-structured. So you might want to see the big picture first. You might want to know that There are linear algorithms, there are some decision tree boosters, the neural nets, some nearest neighbors algorithms, and so on. There are also supervised and unsupervised learning and so on. So without uh, seeing this big picture, it's hard to go deeper. But the problem with that was you don't understand how to prioritize this knowledge. So for example, Mm -hmm. uh, you read a book, 300 pages book, and there are a lot of algorithms out there and nobody tells you which one is the best nobody tells you that lightgbm is faster than xgboost the amount of knowledge is so huge that it's really hard to comprehend it all you might want to seek for some help maybe from the experienced uh, data scientist to guide you towards the most important pieces of this knowledge in short i think uh, big courses and big specializations on coursera are good for me particular I was feeling uh, a bit uncomfortable when I didn't finish the course. So if I started the course, I need to finish. Sometimes it is unproductive and uh, sometimes I experienced it with the books as well. It's hard to say that I I made a mistake. I don't have to finish this book or this course. Sometimes it seems like a mistake, but you still can uh, extract some knowledge out of uh, this course. You need a big picture, but then uh, dive straight straight into practice and uh, dive straight into some smaller pieces of advice and knowledge.
0: So interesting. And tell me, since your original love was
1: automation,
0: what is the role that automation has played in your Kaggle career and Kaggle success?
1: So for me... The whole journey on Kaggle was about improving my skills as a software engineer, as a data scientist. Not many people realize the main goal of Kaggle is in building pipelines. You have a very limited number of tasks, like classification task for images, for example, or like object detection or in any like tasks NLP. You actually can build a pipeline using all popular algorithms, It should be flexible enough to tackle different tasks at different competitions. And it also should be powerful enough to do well. And uh, this is actually the ultimate goal. If you want to spend less and less time on Kaggle, you will end up with uh, having those pipelines. I know that a lot of Grandmasters have uh, some strength in um, Building pipelines for different tasks. Sometimes it could be a stacking. Sometimes it could be a classification task and so on. This is exactly where automation comes to play because when you start uh, your very first competition, you probably get your code from a public kernel. You somehow improved it, but when you try to reuse it, it falls apart. You have to rewrite a lot of code, but then you build some modules which more universal and can be reused. This is exactly what automation is about. And the ultimate goal is to have uh, like two scripts. One is called Fit and the other is called Predict. I think uh, this topic uh, was really well covered by famous Russian Grandmaster Pavel Ostakov uh, during uh, his workshop on Kaggle Days, Paris. So he, he actually shared his pipeline for image classification, which he mastered, and uh, he won uh, I think, several gold medals with this pipeline. He explained how this pipeline evolved. This is the ultimate goal. And uh, for achieving this goal, you have to be good at software engineering as well as machine learning. You need to understand algorithms. You need to program well. Very
0: interesting. And the competitions that you've done in Kaggle, how do you approach a new competition? You're starting a new one. What are some of the steps that you go through?
1: I think uh, my approach uh, have changed during the time of me participating on Kaggle. So when I was a newcomer, I tried to enter every competition from the very first day I download the data, then I could. Uh, do some exploratory analysis by myself or maybe read the ETA kernel on Kaggle. And then uh, the idea is to build a basic pipeline and uh, to see how it performs and then to build on top of this pipeline to make it more complex. And uh, as you spend maybe a month or two looking at a particular data set, at the end, uh, you will acquire some insights like from the data. And uh, this is uh, usually uh, what helps you to get the very first places to get you the gold medal. But um the crucial part is to spend uh, a lot of time thinking about the problem and uh, looking at actually looking at the data because everybody can do like fit predict with uh, some basic scalar uh, models, mm. but that's not the way uh, people win competitions. To build the proper cross validation, in order to do that, you need to understand the data. If it's a time series. Uh, then uh, there's going to be a different cross-validation from just uh, tabular data and so on and so forth. And now, uh, as I became number three, uh, I don't have uh, that much time to spend. I usually try to join uh, some top teams uh, from uh, Odeas.ai community. And uh, to try and help them at the, the very last uh, stage of the competition during the last week, when people try to stack their solutions. And uh, I'm really surprised that I quite often see top-performing teams on Kaggle, maybe in the gold zone, and uh, I can actually help them with some basic tips, like let's use uh, LightGBM instead of neural nets and people like wow we we could use that that's such a powerful tool and uh, maybe some tips on on the rules of kaggle because it's clear that Competitions on Kaggle and the real world data science, uh, those are two completely different things. There were numerous examples when uh, people from business, from academia, they couldn't win competitions because they didn't know like some peculiarities about the rules, test split and so on. And um, when you spend two years on Kaggle, you know a lot of this stuff, (laughs) uh, which newcomers don't. And uh, yeah, they can leverage your experience. You can leverage their work as well. That's
0: fantastic. I actually just realized that time. We're basically out of time. So I do do want to be respectful of your time. Pavel, this has been amazing. This has been really, really, really amazing, obviously, because I totally lost track of time. So I only have one last question for you. And that is, is a takeaway that you would like to leave the audience with a piece of advice or something to help them through their data science journey?
1: Yeah, yeah. I've been preparing for that and uh, I almost gave this advice uh, in the middle of the interview, but stopped myself in the middle of the sentence. It's a bit unusual, but bear with me. So um, if you're a newcomer to data science, then uh, you need to think twice if you really want to do this. I know a lot of people uh, want to get on this hype train of data science. They know that this is a very popular profession now. It's very well-paid. I know that a lot of software engineers, a lot of uh, PhDs, researchers uh, want to switch to data science, but um, actually it's no different from any other job. It has its own downsides. There are a lot of routine in the daily job of a data scientist. So uh, if uh, you are really not sure about that, then uh, please don't become a data scientist. I'm not afraid of a competition, but for me, the most decisive thing that should be on your mind is uh, whether you enjoy the process or not. So I got lucky and uh, I enjoyed data science more than any activity out there. If you don't, then uh, please don't force yourself on enjoying this. At the end, uh, you will probably feel miserable. You will probably feel that you are not in the right place and uh, you at the end will be forced to switch career once again. From my experience, it is a very painful process. It's better to find things you enjoy as early as possible and pursue them. That's my takeaway.
0: That is fantastic. that is an amazing, amazing note to end on. Pavel, thank you so much for your time. Thank you so much for sharing all your journey, your knowledge, your wisdom. It's been absolutely phenomenal. Thanks so much. It's
1: been a pleasure. Thank
0: you so much. Thank you. Data source Services is Australia's leading executive search and recruitment provider to the data and analytics industry. Data Source is chosen by many of Australia's most successful and innovative analytics teams, working closely to understand customer needs and deliver the top performing candidates in the Australian market. From executives and directors through to project managers, BAs and technical specialists, our deep networks allow us to source the highest calibre of candidate. Our consultative and personalised approach to the recruitment process ensures ensures the highest level of service and care across both contracting and permanent roles. Whether you're looking to hire or searching for your next career move, please contact will at datasourceservices.com.au for more information. Exciting news listeners, University of New South Wales has launched a new Master of Data Science and it's 100% online. They have designed this program to deliver the skills that are in the highest demand and most difficult to find. It covers the advanced stats, programming, machine learning and strategy areas you need to be able to call yourself a true data scientist. To find out more, visit studyonline.unsw.edu.au that brings this episode to conclusion thank you so much for listening please find us on datafuturology.com or on facebook twitter linkedin or instagram as datafuturology also go to datafuturology.com forward slash podcast to find the show notes for this and any other episodes if you like this episode it would mean a lot to us if you could leave us a review wherever you listen to our podcast. I hope you enjoyed this episode and that it was helpful and valuable for you.
1: Thanks again and see you next time.